show of hands. Who's ridden a train at in high school where we had a train safety day um oh. and they brought yeah they brought like a, a representative from uh, norfolk southern uh was the train company and so the guy is like this exactly what you would picture like a train guy to look like like big <laughs> droopy mustache gray hair and like balding a little like overweight and uh, they put like a, a railroad crossing sign at the at the front of the door when you walked into class. So like most people would just be like, I, I just like walk past it because yeah. it's like, oh, it's fucking in the way. Like this yeah. is for some presentation, and they're like, no, you should have waited until it like went up. <laughs> that was it was like a le- his big lesson. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 at the to s- open the class was that like no actually like you, when you see those clothes that means business like don't like don't and I was like yeah I was just fucking getting to my seat. Yeah. You failed the first first part of the test. <laughs> yeah, so you're dead now. <laughs> I think that's how he let it off. Was like everyone who just walked past it, you're all dead. <laughs> you're done. <laughs> Welcome to Extended Clip, the number one train safety podcast, mm-hmm. episode thirty six. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. Let's run a train on this episode. <laughs> I'm JT White. I was waiting for like who was going to say that, and I'm glad it only took 75 seconds I of just, the podcast. I figured to get we'd there. get it out of the way, you know, not let it bother other aspects of the podcast. It's true. We we got to get all of the train stuff out of the way, and then we could talk about the movies that show the trains. Mm-hmm. We're all wearing conductor hats right now. R.I.P. Bobby Bacala. <laughs> Uh, so today's double feature is uh, the last of our decade consideration mini series before our best of the decade episode next week. Uh, these movies are about trains and they're late period movies uh, by masters of genre filmmaking. Uh, it's Unstoppable, the 2010 Tony Scott movie, and the 1517 to Paris, the Clint Eastwood 2018 film. These are good movies. What can I say? <laughs> I mean, like, you know, they're a combined maybe three hours or so. Uh, they got the most uh, primal cinematic fetish there ever was, a train right at the forefront. And uh, you're with your boys and you're having a good time, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like they both also focus on, like, heroic acts of people just doing just doing what they're trained to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it has that uh, element of camaraderie, too, between both movies, both, you know, good times in transit. Yeah. <laughs> Unstoppable, uh, the final film by Tony Scott, is a 20th century Fox picture. Uh, makes you think of the old days, you know, <laughs> back when uh, that wasn't owned by Disney. And it is kind of a this weird transition. It's this last grasp of uh 35 millimeter you know it's shot on this really kind of sheeny uh super 35 with all these like digital screens on screen you know showing Mm -hmm. the news and the computers and the war room as it was the trained war room (laughs) uh but anyway after a few slow motion uh shots of trains you get the title unstoppable uh and from there uh the tension begins building you get uh chris pine trying to call his wife and She's watching Family Guy instead of picking up the phone. Uh, that, don't worry, she'll call back. She's just watching Family Guy. <laughs> uh, and then we go to the train yard and we see kind of the inciting incident take place as these two bozos, uh, mm-hmm. played by T.J. Miller and the guy from My Name is Earl. Uh, not Jason Lee, but his friend. Is it the guy from? I thought it was the guy from I'm, My Name I, is Earl. I think it is. Yeah. His like mm-hmm. you saying that and remembering his face that clicks together. Yeah. In 2010, the height of his popularity. <laughs> this guy, whoever he is. Uh, and you know they're doing what they're born to do, messing up, mm-hmm. and uh, they let a, a coaster, they let a train go uh, coasting on its own. Uh, but little do they know, it's going to start picking up some power. Yeah, it's kind of as, you know, I'm not a conductor. I've never worked on a train, but it seems it seems very obvious right when they leave the cabin, leave the train, un, un, you know, unmanned. Something's going to go wrong. And uh, you get a great scene where Dewey, the, you know, the bozo fuck up, 
um, exits his, uh, you know, driver's seat to, you know, switch lanes on the train tracks. And it's just um, not fast enough to get back into the, the train car. Yeah, that is great. He falls and then all the guys on their lunch break or whatever are <laughs> laughing at him. Yeah. <laughs> just uh, like real life. Fat guy falling down. <laughs> Tale as old as time. <laughs> uh, um, one thing I wanted to touch on, uh, like in sort of the opening and like setting up the world of it is that this film just bleeds rural Pennsylvania and like small towns so fucking well uh, being from like around that area this is more on like western Pennsylvania um, I was like central but like a lot of similar like uh, forest areas um, definitely like big amount of railroads. The one uh, scene I think early on that rings true is someone's driving around and they're listening to Country Boy by Alan Jackson. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, I have fucking lived that moment. <laughs> um, and it's uh, really great in like how it builds that little world. Yeah, that, that scene, that's the introduction of uh, Ned, the uh, pickup truck driver mm-hmm. who was late to work. So he thankfully was able to get a head start to catch up with the, uh, the loose triple seven. Uh, and he's like drifting out of the parking lot listening to that and uh, he's a great character mm-hmm. uh, this film is just filled with uh, good to great character actors uh, just like doing a job on screen uh, in this like very fast-paced thing and it just I don't know uh, as you know Chris Pine and Denzel uh, they're matched up and they once they hit the road on, in their train the momentum of the film does not stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it switches from news coverage pretty soon once the news catches on from, you know, panic in the war room, like you said. It really just has a nonstop pace, maybe similar to a runaway train. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone ever thought of that before? <laughs> uh, yeah, and like, obviously it's tony scott's style that's Mm -hmm. like propelling this film forward with so much momentum he's just swinging the camera around so fast and like zooming so hard on stuff and Mm -hmm. just i don't know he's able to keep it from seeming sloppy though it seems Mm -hmm. like he's all he has it all mapped out so tightly uh just using the frame in as creative a way as possible without getting in the way of the people pretty much uh throughout this whole movie you know like the shooting from outside of the train looking in at the two main Mm -hmm. characters it's always you know the glass in between the camera and the person and the reflection of like the passing by trees and uh railroad tracks and stuff like that is just always keeping it just extremely interesting on a visual level no yeah on a visual level it almost kind of like works in like patterns and stuff like that and you you have to like you know it'll have the shot of the train through the trees and then we'll go back to like denzel and you know shot through the glass and then you know get a zoom out and like a zoom in and it's just it's all really exhilarating so once like i guess you would say the first act break uh happens and you realize that this movie is going to be about uh denzel and chris pine working together you know the the old vet and the young hotshot who got the job through uh what's the word uh nepotism nepotism. yes uh the classic nepotism hero (laughs) (laughs) Uh, are going to be chasing down this train you know they start to get to know each other and it's just like such a i don't know kind of familiar Mm -hmm. uh feeling in their conversation you know like i've i've seen this movie a couple times but it feels when they're in dialogue on the train it feels like i've seen it 30 times already you know Mm -hmm. yeah and they're both kind of like uh maybe in positions where they wouldn't want to be like Chris Pine got the restraining order from his wife and kids and Denzel, you know, just kind of, uh, he's fired from his, or he had his 90 day notice already. And his, you know, his daughters are working at Hooters, which he seems to be fine with. It's just like, yeah, it's a pretty lighthearted, fun moment. There's a lot of movies who would be like, that would, you know, kind of relish that opportunity. He's like, yeah, my daughters are working at Hooters. But he's pretty, he just has a chuckle about it. It's and, nice. Yeah, and later as, like, all of the, the action is unfolding and it's it's being watched mm-hmm. in yeah. the Hooters. Yeah. And I love those, like, reaction shots of those crowds. And you get some nice club music, like, once you're at the Hooters, too, to, you know, yeah. mess with the rhythm. It's nice. <laughs> I feel like, uh, yeah, you don't hear soundtracks like this in action movies anymore. I don't know. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's a lot of this that's, like, something you don't see anymore yeah. uh, but at the same time it's looking forward and using True. all of this new tech you know it's like the the clash between film and digital on mm-hmm. this is very apparent uh you know as i already said 
shooting all these digital screens on film and then even like very early on when you're introduced to Denzel's character you see him kiss like a film strip a picture of his two daughters yeah. and he puts it in his pocket and he's like really happy and then like the next scene he pulls out his phone and he's really pissed off and there's a picture of his daughters as the wallpaper yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot of pissed off phone calls in this pretty good stuff on yeah. that end yeah I love I love a nice pissed off phone call, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Mel Gibson, you ever look up look up those tapes? <laughs> Mel Gibson's like the best part of the Mel Gibson tapes is when he's like <gasps> he's just like, deep, <laughs> he's like deeply breathing from how angry he is. <laughs> kind of a detour. Yeah, but, but uh, the movie is kind of like most of the dialogue is either phone calls or like over the radio, you know, True, like yeah. from the train back to headquarters headquarters talking to the company headquarters uh who are more concerned with you know how the stock's gonna do if the train derails or whatever <laughs> yeah. no yeah i love how it cuts between all the different like bureau like wings of this bureaucratic institution that controls the train mm-hmm. and it has that really nice like i don't know the classic corporate enemy and just i mean very similar uh, to 1517 in that it's like the individuals like triumphing over like the failure of like the bureaucratic systems that surround them. Exactly. It, it seems like it would be a Clint Eastwood film in that regard. But back at, you know, the the station, you have uh, Rosario Dawson as, you know, the person who's kind of calling the shots. Uh, she's the yard master. And then you also have Kevin Corrigan there, who's like the train guy. He's the specialist who was there to <laughs> teach kids about railway safety. But instead, he's like the ex giving all the train uh, FAQs, you know, and uh, that's pretty great character performance from Kevin Corrigan. You know, it's always nice to see him show up. It's about, you know, some train knowledge. That's for all the train fans. Get your <laughs> notebooks up. He's uh, he's the character that, you know, people watching it for that reason. That's who they attach to. You know? <laughs> it's your way in. Um, does he push up his glasses at one point before he gives information? I feel like he does. So. You have the two main characters trying to catch this runaway train, 777. And at the same time, you have the police force and fire department doing their thing. And the train company also, like, everyone is making efforts to attempt, uh, or making efforts to stop the train. Uh, They throw, like, a slower train in front of it at one point, which just kills a poor train driver. Yeah. a conductor, I guess, who you mm-hmm. met in the beginning. He's one of the guys who uh, Pine says he doesn't want to be at the retirement home to. Yeah, Judd Stewart, a 26-year vet of the train industry. Yeah, and it's really, like, it's mm-hmm. awful when Denzel finds out about that. Mm-hmm. And then Pine's just like, oh, you knew him? It's like, yeah, you met him too. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, that guy got owned that tried to insult me earlier. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and at the same time, they have the helicopter going, and they mm-hmm. have this, like, U.S. Marine who just came back from Afghanistan, like, like uh, dropping in uh, from the helicopter and he just gets like swung around and flown through the fucking windshield of one of the train cars Mm -hmm. uh, and he gets completely fucked up. But like, it's so amazing. At one point the screen is split and you see the fire trucks and the cops and uh, the pickup truck on the left side of the screen Mm -hmm. zooming along. And then on the right side of the screen, you see the train and the helicopter and the guy Mm -hmm. floating beneath it. And it only lasts like two or three seconds, but it kind of implants in your mind. Like that is the image of that like 20 minute chunk of the film you know mm-hmm. and it does i feel like it goes to you know that shot a couple times where it'll show like whatever car's following it and yeah it's i mean it's, it's such a money shot oh of course just like anytime he just decides to put the camera just like on the train track below mm-hmm. it you know sure. and the train goes over that it's just like oh yeah that's easy money yeah you know, I, every time it works that's what's great about this movie he kind of like finds like a lot of like cracks and crevices but like an open space or yeah. something like that he really finds a lot of creative places to put the camera, but still maintain like a, a great rhythm. No, yeah. When you're with uh, Denzel and Chris Pine, it's like the setup that he has. You know, it's almost like he's in the groove the way like a sitcom does with that set. You know, mm-hmm. he like knows all the angles already of how to do it. He has the way where he, you know, swings around the front of the train back and forth yeah. as they're talking for, you know, and then you have the train moving already and there's so much motion in those shots. It's just insane. Oh, over there pretty basic dialogue just like at work dialogue but mm-hmm. so much passing over the screen and you know shooting through the windows and using the side view mirrors of the train and everything it's like you know it feels like he's been shooting on this train for years you know excuse me because i got what because i cut, cut in too many i cut in too many cars cut in too many cars son 
And maybe if you weren't on my ass the whole no, time, I might be able to think straight and do my job. Now, what do you mean, maybe if I... You do my ass this whole fucking trip. I'm just saying, pick a goddamn job, I right? I got you my pull job. The throttle, you pick you pull one. The I pull the throttle. It's one or the other. pull the pins. You're five pins too many. Pull the pins. You're right. Pull the pins. I've pull had pins. my training, all right? Yeah, but we're out here in the real world. This ain't training. In training, they just give you an F. Out here, you get killed. I screwed up. Okay, yes, so you want me to stop and roll back, and I'll cut the F. Roll back. Uh, so other people that try to stop them, uh, you get all these guys with guns, I guess, that are cops. Uh, were, those guys were cops, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and they all just are shooting at it. Unload <laughs> <laughs> the clip. <laughs> that was a pretty funny scene. <laughs> to hit like a small button-sized target within the driver's cabin or whatever. Yeah, they were shooting next to a gas can, too. Like. Yeah. Uh, and then they try to use this like derailer that you know Denzel says isn't going to work, and then you see it. And it's just this tiny little ramp that they try to use mm-hmm. uh, to stop a train going seventy miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, working class just, wisdom. Yeah, exactly. It just runs it over, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what I, also another thing I like about this movie, you said like with a lot of the at work talk, it shows a lot of respect to like their jobs and like a, a lot of the stuff that they have to know in order to operate it. Oh, and yeah. Like Pine will fuck up and Denzel, be, you know, will give him shit. You know, he just wants him to do it right. Yeah, no, they, they're they very good at, like, the very specifics mm-hmm. of, you know, conducting a train. All this dialogue that doesn't make sense to me, but then you see <laughs> how they respond to it, and you're like, oh, that's what he was telling him to do. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. yeah. Uh, very lived-in work dialogue in this, for sure. Uh, so then they finally, you know, catch up to the train, and that's where, uh, you know, like... Chris Pine's wife, who has a restraining order, is like watching, uh, like her fucking bozo husband, like mm-hmm. eat shit and just get his leg caught in between the trains and like torn up mm-hmm. on TV. The news coverage of it, I love like how sensational yeah. uh, the news coverage of it is. It's using Tony Scott's foot, like the camera footage that the news uses <laughs> yeah. is the most expressionist, like crazy action shit ever. Yeah, it's literally just like the movie, but they'll just layer like a news filter on it. Yeah, but I love narration. that. No, yeah, I, no, no, I like it too. And like, I was thinking that too. I'm like, I've never seen anything this exciting like on the news. Like yeah. this would be, <laughs> if this was on the news and have this would be insane. What if this was <laughs> real? <laughs> Uh, so as they close in on uh, the runaway train, uh, a great moment is where Denzel says to take that yellow vest off, you know, because he has like the rookie vest on and it's kind of just like amateur hour is fucking over. You got to you, you're going to have to make some sacrifices now. Do do the hard work. And he like jumps onto the pickup truck and jumps back onto the front of it. It's a pretty insane final 20 minutes yeah. of them trying to take back over that train. You have Denzel running on top of the train cars while it's going like 50 miles per hour. It's, it's so insane. bad. Yeah. I love what he stops short, like when the gap is too big yeah. to jump between train cars at his daughter it cuts to his daughter at hooters watching it she's like do it (laughs) (laughs) definitely would have died (laughs) well i guess that's why he's the professional yeah it's true (laughs) and i love how like so it all you know works out they get the train to stop and uh then they get you know a nice press conference the next day and it just like feels like it's still in the news coverage of it yeah and like the helicopter shot fades away from the action and you just hear the it, the guy over the radio say like, over and out and it cuts to the credits perfect ending i was what i was really psyched on that ending. i loved it so much yeah i was getting kind of euphoric vibes from the press conference scene almost kind of like dr t and the woman wedding i don't know that just popped in <laughs> popped in my head kind of a Maybe a strange comparison, but, you know, it popped up. It was still moving at that crazy, chaotic yeah. pace, even though I thought, I always think that scene's going to be a sigh of relief, but mm-hmm. all three times I've watched it, it's like, oh, this is just as hardcore as the rest of the movie. Yeah, and it has that slight implication at the end that maybe Rosario Dawson and Denzel will be a couple or something like that. Well, you she know? kisses him on yeah, the cheek. But, like, they keep, look, they keep cutting back and, like, looking at each other. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe I was looking too much into it. Maybe Mosey yeah. gone in on yeah. Cory Booker. Yeah. <laughs> I think you were shipping there, uh, well, sorry. Here, delete delete that from the podcast. Rosaria Dawson needs a real man like yeah. Denzel. Honestly, <laughs> I agree. This is not a fan fiction podcast. <laughs> you not shit. Unstoppable fan fiction. <laughs> and then Denzel invites Rosario Dawson to train number four. In the <laughs> oh God. Yeah, but this thing is just brimming with style and, like, building momentum with pretty much every single scene. 
you know, the small set pieces along the way that feel almost climactic, they just remind you that it's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger until that final action set piece. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's remarkable. And it's like the most basic thing. Just make a train go fast and you have to stop it. And it's 90 minutes and it's the perfect utility movie you know yeah. <laughs> it's like a it's like in baseball a utility player who could play in the infield outfield play any position you know uh but yeah it's a great movie it's uh four bullets for me yeah it's also four bullets for me too the denzel tony scott combo is pretty unbeatable from what i've seen so far i kind of want to see all their work together yeah good stuff um yeah this is also four bullets for me damn um but i think this might actually be my first tony scott flick Damn. Maybe I don't know. It's definitely the one. If if uh, if not, then that's left the most impression. But uh, yeah, Good I think time. we should do more uh, Tony Scott because I've only to. seen a couple. I've only yeah. seen like this Days of Thunder. Uh, that was the Sixth Sense, by yeah. the way. Uh, this Days of Thunder. I saw Deja Vu when I was a kid when it came out, mm-hmm. but I only remember going to the theater to see it. I don't yeah. remember the movie at all. I remember riding my bike with my cousin. And we went to the AMC in like Woodland Hills or whatever, you know, the Promenade oh, 16. Yeah. Yeah. AMC 16, of course. Yeah. Uh, wait, I have seen The Hunger by him, uh, which I wasn't like too hot on, but yeah. I feel like I went in expecting like a different type of thing. Mm-hmm. Deja Vu is a fantastic movie. It's like, it's amazing. Okay, well, we'll be back to talk about the 1517 to Paris. Bail, bail, bail. Welcome back to Extended Clip. Uh, before we get into the 1517 to Paris, any other notable viewings you guys want to catch us up on this week? Sure, yeah. I watched, I watched a good amount of stuff. Watch, you know, I've been doing the decade catch-up, but I'm going to talk about a couple that aren't in there. I watched Two Seconds by Mervyn Leroy, uh, starring Edward G. Robinson, you know, a god-tier actor, in my opinion. Um, 67-minute movie, just up front. You know, that's a, that's a good sell. Um, this is around the pre-code era. It's around 32. I don't know. Yeah, I think that falls into the pre-code era. But um, you see pre-code era's uh, films are sometimes mentioned for kind of being like like outwardly progressive or, you know, for the time or whatever. Well, this one kind of does the opposite. And it's just about like more problematic and sour than I usually get from movies around that era. It's about um, Edward G. Robinson, who's like a construction worker and who marries like a bar floozy while he's drunk off his ass basically gets take advantage of taken advantage of and his life goes to shit i think he kills it yeah and then he kills his wife for cheating on him <laughs> jesus <laughs> and that's the movie basically damn um, and um but mervyn leroy is very talented from what i've seen i love his movie um I was a fugitive in, from a chain gang. Oh yeah, I've heard yeah, really yeah. good things about that one. Which is actually pretty uh, kind of the opposite in terms of its progressiveness about like uh, prison politics and mm-hmm. shit like that. Um, well, this one it's it starts with um, it literally starts with Edward G. Robinson being carried to the electric chair, and then they're talking about like the electric chair doesn't instantly kill people. They still have two seconds after they're completely shocked, where their life flashes right before their eyes, and we live in those two seconds throughout the entire movie. Damn. Um, I, I mean, it's it's sour. It's definitely misogynistic. No, no, you know. But it's I had a good time. It was a it's a good movie. And then another misogynistic movie I watched, uh, <laughs> "She Hate Me" by Spike Lee. Oh, nice. Um, where this this movie deals with a lot of issues. It opens uh, up on the its opening credits with a three dollar bill of George Bush on it that has the Enron logo stamp, stamped on it. Oh wow! Yeah, that's like a political commentary. Yeah, it has expressionistic recreations of Watergate. The movie's about this guy named John Armstrong, who's a whistleblower for some Enron type company run by Woody Harrelson. And basically, once he blows the whistle, the tables get turned on him. He gets accused of the corruption and, uh, you know, is bogged down in court and all of his assets are frozen. So, you know, he um, all of a sudden his uh, his lesbian ex-girlfriend shows up in his life and wants him to impregnate her and will pay to do it. And so basically he becomes like a, a guy who fucks lesbians if they want a baby. 
for money, five uh, five thousand each. Seems like a premise that would not be problematic and actually be received with warm open yeah, arms. Yeah, yeah, and um, there's a lot of scenes of Anthony Mackie just fucking lesbians. Just Damn. about a good like thirty minutes of just raw, you know, footage. Is it of like sex supposed scenes. to be funny? Yeah, it's a lot of funny. It's funny sex scenes. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm usually a defender of anything Spike Lee does, but mm-hmm. that sounds rough. And this this movie is kind of saved by its it is like its its stylistic qualities. It's still Spike Lee at his his most creative, one of his most creative visually, kind of similar to Bamboozled in its visual style, but not as erratic. But this movie's like two hours twenty minutes. It's kind of a slog and. Spike Lee has made a couple groaners for me, especially sometimes in dialogue where you're just the way that people speak to each other, you're just like, oh, come on. Like, just like, <laughs> and I know Chirac gets accused of that a lot, but I, I like Chirac where this is just, it gets grating after a while. But yeah. as a Spike Lee fan, I'm glad I watched it. There's definitely a lot of funny moments in it um, intentionally and, you know, not intentionally. Like the CGI sperm, uh, pretty bad, pretty, I was not a fan of that. Yeah. Um, but... You know, he. Ma- I'm glad he made this movie. I guess I remember I had a teacher said that Spike every like three films, Spike Lee will just make a horny ass movie where <laughs> there's just a lot of like sex in it for no reason. And I mean, this, this is, is one this, of those. this is one of them. <laughs> just a lot of, yeah. Was this three films after Girl Six? Possible. Mm, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I think. I think so. Damn. I think so. Damn. Well, I'm glad he got it out of his system. But uh, it, honestly, if you're a Spike Lee fan, I'd say check it out. It's worth it's worth the watch. Yeah. What about you, JT? I've also been playing a little bit of Decade Catch Up, but uh, I'm not going to talk about one of those films because I'll save that for when we talk about the decade. Um, one really good flick I watched was The Seduction of Mimi, 1972, by Lena Wertmuller. And I've brought up uh, Wertmuller before in these like middle segments for Seven Beauties, which I really loved. Um, and I have a weird relationship with her as a director because I like of the four films I've seen like two I'm really big on and then two are like just like tacky as fuck and it's just like her style of doing like leftist like absurd comedies I feel like when it works it's like on but just like it's watching for the most part uh, her films uh, she works with this one lead actor Giancarlo Giannini uh, a lot and he in all of the movies he's going like full-on bozo mode just fucking <laughs> up hard and uh, it's really funny sometimes but then other times it will just be used to like a grading effect but the seduction of Mimi his character works really well he plays uh, this guy named Mimi who's in uh, like an Italian village and his job is uh, controlled by the mob, but he decides to vote for the communists because the communists tell him, like, no, no one's going to know like what who you vote for. And then they the mafia knows who he voted for, and he gets kicked out of his job. And uh, he moves to a different Italian town, leaving behind his wife, just, like, fucking ditching her. And he meets this, like, Trotsky, uh, Trotskyite woman, and like falls super hard for her and does the classic leftist bro thing of like <laughs> pretending like he's really a part of the cause more but when their relationship gets like really strong he like starts to, he's like oh fuck we don't need to go in meetings or anything <laughs> kind of stuff and it's like really great because I feel like it's similar like I mean just from like the stupid fucking Twitter leftist squabbling it's a lot of that same bullshit mm-hmm. but in Italy in the 70s uh, and uh, just, I don't know, nonstop laughs, uh, a lot of really good points, and just uh, cuckold is used as an insult, like, so much, mm. so that's another way. The left's got to take it back. Yeah. Absolutely. It's alt- so it's an alt-right movie? It's one of those <laughs> 4chan movies where they talk about <laughs> wives getting fucked? <laughs> no thanks. Uh, but what about you, Eddie? What have you watched this week? Um, I... Also, was catching up on some best of the decade stuff that I will save for next week. Good call. Uh, an old one that I checked out was a 1955 Phil Carlson movie called Five Against the House. Uh, Phil Carlson, you know, known for some gritty film noir. This one, a little more polished. Not really even a noir, more just like a thriller. 
Um, and it stars Kim Novak and four guys who are supposed to be college students who are like in their 40s. But I, it's kind of explained by two of them being vets from Korea. Uh, but like, so that puts another couple years on that. And it's like, they're in law school, you know, but they're so old. It's crazy. <laughs> it's like hard to buy that they're students, but whatever. Um, and yeah, they kind of do their little, uh, B movie oceans 11, where instead of, you know, robbing the big casino, they're going to Reno and it's uh you know, it's a B movie from Columbia <laughs> instead of a big like MGM thing or whatever. Uh, and then it's also like, uh, you know how like in Rope where it's those two students just like their navel gazy shit about murder. Like, oh, if we could plan the perfect yeah. murder. <laughs> it's a little bit like that where they're like, we're going to not keep the money uh, just to prove that we could be the first people to rob a casino in Reno, Nevada. It's like, okay, dude. Like, <laughs> but once you get over like the kind of dumb low stakes premise, uh, it is just like a really tight fun thriller uh where of course one character then wants to keep the money of course uh and kim novak gets two musical numbers in the middle of it uh and the casino is like really it's a really fun set you know with uh kind of like a catwalk thing above the ceiling where the security guards are peering down through these holes uh because you know obviously it's more low tech uh that you'd see in anything like the oceans movies they're literally just looking through holes in the ceiling uh but you get a lot of great like pov shots of that kind of stuff uh and uh yeah it's a really fun movie so check it out 1955 five against the house that's my little uh, old Hollywood <laughs> corner. <laughs> and yes, we are talking still about the 1517 to Paris, uh, the 2018 film by Clint Eastwood about three American bozos who thwart a terrorist attack on a train headed to Paris. <sighs> what do you guys think of this one? I, I remember watching when it came out and definitely liking it, but I, I don't think I fully grasped the greatness of it. But rewatching it again, just about, you know, three guys kind of inconsequential lives, you know, somehow leads up to, you know, stopping a terrorist attack. It's just it's super enjoyable. Just a lot of fun scenes, you know, just getting gelato, Jamba Juice, just shit like that. Normal shit. Yeah. Fifteen Seventeen. I feel like talking about this on the pod is a watershed moment for us (laughs) because we've danced around Clint a whole lot, given him a good uh, like side talking. But now we're finally like fucking going for it. And like for me, I mean, this is my second time watching it and I really enjoyed it. Um, But like this is one of the early like movies that I feel like like got me on to Eastwood that I heard about like an interesting like reading of it or like that what Malcolm was saying like an appreciation of like the slow just regular fella like shit. Um, And it's really beautiful that he manages to do that in this film and then deliver like the last like 30 minutes of just like intense action. Yeah, I mean, at this point in his career, Clint Eastwood had, you know, uh, started the streak that he's on now of these biopics of, you know, recent heroic events uh, or heroic figures. I mean, whether or not you want to call Chris Kyle a hero, obviously. (laughs) Hey, he Uh, served his country. (laughs) Yeah, he's one of the heroes of our podcast. What have you done for your country? Definitely (laughs) the most morally gray of of that series of movies, I guess, Mm -hmm. that then goes to like Sully. Uh, and The Mule and Richard Jewell after this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one, though, the exception is that he doesn't get a Tom Hanks, a Bradley Cooper, a Paul Walter Hauser, or a Clint Eastwood type star. Uh, he casts the real heroes. And it's technically based on the book that they wrote alongside like a ghostwriter. Uh, and I wanted to read a little something from the prologue of the book. Um, it, it's talking about kind of the moments as the... Uh, thwarted terrorist attack is happening and uh, that's like mainly what the prologue is kind of how this film opens on those shots of the terrorist and will occasionally cut to the incident the the moments leading up to the incident uh, kind of as chapter breaks uh, between the narrative of the film Uh, so here it says Later, Spencer would say he wished he had a video of what happened but his older brother Everett a highway patrolman disagreed Everett knew what it was like to go through traumatic confrontation that felt so maddeningly different from what an unfeeling security camera captured that it was actually disorienting. It's better that you just have your memories, he said. But that was just it. 
their memories were different. Now, you think about that, and then you think about Clint Eastwood taking these three guys across Europe, like recreating uh, their mm-hmm. bozo vacation, <laughs> <laughs> and then recreating by far like the most defining traumatic moment probably that will ever happen in their lives mm-hmm. or, or ever did happen, you know? Uh, and it's like, I don't know. Maybe you should. Maybe it's not moral. <laughs> yeah. I mean, didn't Clint originally want to get like the actual terrorist yeah. to play himself too? That's yeah. sick. That's what, that is what I've heard. I, I don't know if we can confirm nor deny that, but that is something I've heard. Uh, but yeah, I think this film does something with memory that the other films don't. You know, all of them use kind of flashbacks and this kind of memory-based structure, uh, like Sully more than any of them. And Sully I like a little more than this. Uh, But this, instead of, uh, like, the memories unfolding on themselves, like in Sully, this one is these memories played out in painstaking detail. And it reaches this, you know, others have uh, compared this to Kurosami, uh, like in close up, you know, the rec- all of the recreations in that film uh, or even in like the Coker trilogy where they're recreating the filming of a previous movie at one point in through the olive trees. Uh, but this is a I, I don't know. It's a much more strange and detached version of that mm-hmm. when you have Spencer Stone working at Jamba Juice. Uh, talking to you know uh, a marine who's like somewhat recruiting him uh, and like these small details of life that don't need to really be etched in stone but are anyway for this film Mm -hmm. and I think it speaks to because these are kind of defining moments in this guy's life to a certain extent you know him awakening awakening his passion you know for the military or joining the military, I should say, because he's a big war fan throughout. They've yeah. these boys have always loved a war. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, you just get certain memories that, like, it would be memorable just to a normal person, like that time you fucked up and you showed up late for class and you yeah. paid, you know, hard for it, or you know, just it's just random collections of stuff like that. Yeah, I love that it's like simultaneously like random, just like memories that you have of a life lived, but also he creates like a through line with so much significance where I feel like talking about how like institutions like sort of fail and like Mm -hmm. shape individuals like happens uh, so much throughout it. Like, er especially early on, like things like that pop up where they're trying to like the uh, Judy Greer uh, says that they're not problem children. (laughs) Um, And shout out Dennis Dugan. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And like they want uh, the, the staff at the school wants to put the kids on like ADHD medicine. Like they have like various antics where they're like rebelling against like the system in very minor ways as young boys. But it like, I don't know when you take all of these random collections of memories, it adds up to like a really significant story of how like broad, like bureaucratic institutions like make individuals. So the film is split into, I guess you could say, four chapters that are broken up by these flashbacks. And the first one uh, is them growing up in Sacramento. Uh, Many have remarked that this is Clint Eastwood's ladybird moment. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, these early scenes, they're a lot, I guess, clunkier even than the recreations with the the real guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's because there's so much more like didactic about like what Clint is putting onto the text here. Like it's so obvious that it's, you know, Uh, the Catholic school messing up and the people who want to put pills in their mouth messing up and Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the influence of military on them at such a young age. Like it's so obvious, but it's also so kind of sad to see like these young kids Mm kind of just like get not like full on brainwashed, but very easily assimilated Mm -hmm. into the roles that they're going to play. And like, you know, early on at, PE they're playing basketball and everyone's in a gray shirt except for Spencer and Alicor and Camo (laughs) yeah these are the couple of you know Todd Phillips would call these guys war dogs (laughs) because I mean yeah they I mean you get a great shot of all the guns a young Spencer Stone has some of them real some of them fake yeah that's one of my favorite scenes ever yeah (laughs) and yeah and then you get the the kind of fun playing outside you know kind of nostalgic look back at just being a child but that's also kind of when uh sadler the their new friend kind of leaves them yeah 
Um, well, that's like the second time when they actually end up going to play with oh, the guns. Because yeah. the first time, uh, Anthony says that he doesn't want to play with the guns because uh, black people don't hunt. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of dialogue that like, feels so just very strange well, the movie, about the race-based uh, stuff in this movie. Isn't the first line of the movie, it's like like Sadler saying, like, you must wonder what a brother like me is hanging out with two guys like this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, from the jump. That stuff kind of dies down past the childhood stuff i feel yeah i think that's why so many people responded uh with such vitriol towards this movie mm-hmm. i mean it's it was completely shit upon oh upon yeah. release. uh in my theater even it was obvious when i saw it, <laughs> it snuck in a little spicy chicken from carl's jr <laughs> <Nice>. uh, <laughs> people were groaning throughout and like leaving <laughs> it's <Damn>. pretty amazing <laughs> that's that's how you know you're making controversial art but it's like it's so obvious though i don't know it's that long scene of him just unloading his arsenal of airsoft guns onto his bed and like also a real shotgun and then they leave to just like do uh you know middle schooler pranks instead but when they leave the room it just like lingers on the american flag that's in his bedroom and it's like it couldn't get more obvious and yet it's okay with me like i i don't see that as too on the nose for me and i think it's like just obvious enough because people still didn't get the movie (laughs) i I, I, like it's very obvious but it's never like i don't know i feel like maybe it's kind of people's expectations of what clint eastwood is that kind of causes them to not read into it because you do get that scene when this scene was probably shot upon more than anything where judy greer says my god is bigger than your statistics you know stuff like that that's the first real scene of the movie yeah you know you get some like a couple of opening flashback kind of things and then the opening vo where it's like Mm -hmm. you wouldn't expect me to be hanging out with these two white guys yeah Uh, but then the first real scene is judy greer and uh jenna fisher Uh, and like yeah the first third of this movie is all you know tv comedy actors like thomas (laughs) lennon and tony hale as well uh or i don't know is judy greer tv i don't i don't know she's she's been in tv i only she was in arrested development right yeah Yeah. i only watch movies (laughs) (laughs) yeah not too familiar with these guys i've actually never uh i've only seen like the first season of arrested development I remember enjoying it back in the day. That was one of like when I was twelve. I was like one of the first comedy shows. I was like, "Damn, this is adult humor. This is what's up." <laughs> the authorial touch of the Russo brothers uh, yeah. behind the camera, and they just go on to kill it. I'm so happy for them. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that first chapter of the movie does have like the most yeah kind of clunky stuff, like the "My God is bigger than your statistics" and. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's just a lot of melodrama, but I kind of like it. And no, all yeah. of like the middle school dumb interactions are so funny to me, even if they're not intentional. Yeah. Like when Spencer loses the class president race. And first of all, their whole origin story is that they mess up until they do the right thing. Like, exactly. Or not even do the right thing. They Until they succeed at the end because they're given opportunity. So one of the first instances of them being losers is Spencer losing the presidential race for sixth grade president president or whatever and when he gets called out for not having a hall pass he rips his hall he, he rips his uh vote for spencer stone poster off the bulletin <laughs> board and tears it up in front of the, Give it the pelosi tear yeah he gives it the nancy pelosi shred here's <laughs> my hall pass <laughs> so good yeah that's it what spencer does is a significantly more defiant act of resistance <laughs> It's true. He was facing the guy. <laughs> yeah, like absolutely. Yeah. Behind it. You know. Fucking coward. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so then they have to like get separated. Uh, Alex's uh, dad has to take him and stay with him. Mm-hmm. And like they have this goodbye where it seems like they're going to hug and they both salute each other. <laughs> it's really funny. I mean, it's just it's so indicative of a certain type of person and, you know, kind of the characteristics they would, would they would do. Yeah, I mean, exactly. even to the point, you know, where you get the real people and they have, they do it for you. <laughs> Uh, then you get like the second chapter uh, this is where it becomes the real heroes mm-hmm. uh, Anthony, Alex and Spencer all playing themselves and uh, Alec uh, Scarlatos is at school uh, learning about data entry and it like we'll cut back to him a couple times and each time the professor's just saying inane stuff about where you could use data entry <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then Spencer is working at Jamba Juice and uh, one of my favorite, you know, looks of all time, just <laughs> serving the absolute drip <laughs> in the Jamba Juice smock. 
then yeah he a, a marine comes by and he pays for his drink which i think is really funny yeah <laughs> yeah just also the fact that his other employee is would f- enforce him to pay for it and not just not give a shit yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's so weird they present her as like the slacker like she has yeah. like a nose rig and stuff she's the one who's like yeah. you know uh probably dissatisfied to be working at yeah job teens just, just hate the troops so yeah, much but then yeah. she's like you're gonna it's gonna come out of your paycheck yeah <laughs> probably probably all the liberal nonsense she has in her head <laughs> But some truly inspirational dialogue being exchanged between the ex-Marine and uh, Spencer Stone there. And their sole purpose is saving people's lives. Pretty badass. Yeah, yeah, that is badass. Can you imagine putting your hands on a man in his most frightening moment and drawing him back to life? Yeah, yeah, I can. Well, here you go. Thanks. How much? On the house. Thanks for your service. Happy to do it. Thank you. Appreciate that. You have a good rest of your day. You too. I wonder if that was his actual coworker at Jamba Juice, because there's other people who are playing real life roles besides the central heroes, it's right? It's true. Yeah, yeah. I didn't look at the credits this time around. Yeah. I remember looking at it the first couple times because mm-hmm. so many of it is as themselves and then so many just like actors filled yeah. in as well. It's a very weird mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, that mix becomes its weirdest at the very end of the movie where oh, they yeah. use the TV footage of the medal ceremony mm-hmm. and yeah. then they will cut to Jenna Fisher and <laughs> yeah. Judy Greer reacting to it. Pure immersion. It's a really fucking like weird, uh, I guess, dialectic between uh, truth and recreation. Yeah, and kind of like a, not to jump to the ending, but kind of like a very anticlimactic tone to kind of end on too oh completely yeah yeah it's not heroic at all. it's like the inverse of you know the end of star wars or something yeah. that metal ceremony mm-hmm. uh you know where lucas looked at uh lenny riefenstahl eastward <laughs> looked at reality yeah and then like it's it's the french speech too so this movie just ends with french dialogue oh yeah, yeah that's true it's very yeah. good and that's when it includes the fourth guy who mm-hmm. was stepping on the terrorist the whole time mm-hmm. and like you don't really see him during the action scene yeah. and then he's with them also getting a medal at the end it's like his story is not told whatsoever but it's kind of great that the end kind of lingers on him a little bit mm-hmm. too 1517 to paris too it's possible yeah <laughs> his redemption arc <laughs> Uh, so during this second chapter, you get Spencer telling Anthony that he's going to join the Marines and they're like pl- watching college football. And this is a great bit of historical revisionism where they're watching Cal and like Marshawn Lynch is playing. And, uh, you know, it's like they're essentially giving him the like beast mode moniker, <laughs> <laughs> like as a college player. They're like, yeah, man, he's great. He's a beast. <laughs> <laughs> Some things are instinctual. <laughs> I never picked up on that. That's really that's really funny. It's really funny what they like pick and choose to do like historical revisionism yeah. of. And like it's funny. It's the memory thing that he said, you know, uh, like you wouldn't want these memories on video. Yeah. And it's like they're recreating these things that are not that, you know, uh, grand. Like Alec was in the National Guard in Afghanistan yeah. and he continues to mess up. He yeah. leaves his rucksack at a village and they like all have to turn around and go <laughs> yeah. back to get it back, which is great. Yeah, and Stone kind of fails with his military ambitions too, kind of doesn't get the exact position he wanted at first and then is kind of just meandering, you know, enough as it is in his current position. Yeah, once he gets rejected from like the para rescue, he then messes up in class multiple times. Mm-hmm. It doesn't show them doing anything particularly positive. Besides, one thing I did notice is that at the end he gets good at jujitsu. That is true. Yeah. yeah, he that was his one like uh, shot of real uh, preparation uh, mm-hmm. was his jujitsu skills. There's a great line where uh, Sadler asks him, you know, how he's doing. He's like, "I'm doing great. You know, drinking beers, hanging by the beach, doing jiu jitsu." <laughs> Portugal rules. <Yeah. laughs> oh, it's not Sadler. It's Scarlatos. Yeah, Excuse yeah. me. This is the only movie I think we've done where I know the character, all the characters, all the characters. <laughs> yeah. yeah. True heroes. Last. For yeah, heroes. Real heroes. Yeah. Uh, so. They then, like, all talk over Skype during this chapter mm-hmm. uh, while Spencer is in Portugal and, uh, you know, Alec is in Afghanistan and Anthony is still in the States. Just, like, mm-hmm. you only see his apartment through Skype. So you have to imagine that's just, like, on another one of the sets that they were using. True. Like, you just see a corner, like, a wall that he's yeah. by. He's like, yeah, man, I just, like, thought about applying for a credit card. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, there's so much great. Like it's just just 
dudes. I want more of this. Just fellas yeah. like going about day to day boring shit. Oh yeah, it's great. So they meet up in Europe, and of course, right away, uh, you know, Anthony busts out the fucking selfie stick. He's like, "We made it to Europe, man. We really made it." Though. <laughs> like, just the most inane, fucking awful dialogue that is so true to what they were definitely saying on that <laughs> trip. This is the most pro selfie movie I've ever seen. Oh, like, for sure. Because there's even like I don't know some like. And sorry to shit on teen girl movies, but even like some <laughs> teen g- girl movie that's like pro selfie probably has like some sort of weird self awareness aspect to it. Where it's just these are just some people who enjoy taking pictures of themselves and they like their selfie stick and it works cool. It's a nice new tool that they found out about. <laughs> and they, they take a lot of them too. That's true. Yeah. And Spencer at first is a little hesitant, you know, but yeah. then he is finally won over mm-hmm. and he delivers one of the best lines of the movie where he says, I got to give it to you, man. The selfie stick is where it's at. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so funny because like, that was like a two year trend too. Yeah, Those exactly. kind of died out. Pretty yeah. <laughs> I mean, this was a few years before though, right? True, yeah. yeah. Uh, th- I feel like there's a couple other like uh, kind of historic. Well, yeah, the historical stuff in the other chapter just by like what athletes they were watching play college mm-hmm. ball. Uh, <laughs> and so on their trip, they do all the tourist stuff you would think. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty fucking amazing, honestly. <laughs> it's <laughs> like this 20-minute chunk of the movie is the reason that I loved it on the first viewing. Mm-hmm. And then everything else kind of set into place as I rewatched it over the years. And it's really realistic about what you get from a vacation. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of there's a lot of movies that like will have characters come to realizations or they have changed throughout their travel where... This is pretty pretty close to at least my real life experience just traveling around the states occasionally. It's like you're not really soaking in much. It's just a you know, it's a time for fun, I yeah, guess. Like you just look at it and yeah, you remember it. Yeah. yeah, you take some selfies there, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, you go to the club, just you know, just simple pleasures. You have a little perversion excursion. Okay. And they call it the perversion excursion if that translates. Oh yeah, I think it translates. <laughs> I love once we get to the club and you get a little bit of horny Clint where he'll just show like him shooting like a bartender's ass and then panning up or something. Oh, yeah. The camera work is so decisive in the Mm -hmm. club. It does not feel like coverage. Every shot is super intentional of the bumping and grinding that these boys are doing up in the club. And Mm -hmm. just, you know, uh, I'm not the first to point this out, you know. The thought of Clint Eastwood in the club in Berlin, uh, with the camera, you know, intimate as ever, just beautiful. Yeah, I, you know, I I reckon that Clint was a party boy. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But like, I mean, yeah, he's light. old. Yeah, he's old. I mean, the mule would demonstrate such behavior. True. Yeah. It's true. The, his very next move. Actually, yeah, he had the mule later this year, which was great. Yeah. Like uh, he had the fifteen seventeen to Paris. That may have been a January release. Yeah. Yeah. And then the mule killed it during award season. <laughs> it's amazing. It's honestly what a great year, 2018. Yeah. Who else does that besides like Soderbergh or something? Hong. Hong. Oh, but yeah. not like American genre. True, movies. true, true. Yeah. But Hong, Hong got to give Hong, you know, you big, give big Hong. props. You got to give Hong his props. <laughs> always, always give Hong his props. So yeah, they just like gallivant around the canals in Venice and they go to the Colosseum in Rome and they look at some statues and eat some gelato. The gelato scene, <laughs> one of the best of Get all Get all time. the flavors. Yeah. Just like a two and a half minute scene of them surveying the flavors, <laughs> trying one, all three oh, of them. Oh, this is pretty good. <laughs> this one's pretty good too. You know, I think I'm going to get the haze on that. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of Spencer, another iconic moment as he busts out the pack of cigs as they're walking upstairs. I Amazing. just seeing him smoke is hilarious. But then like they're on the rooftop looking over uh the city that they're in. I think they're in Spain at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh he delivers that amazing quote. Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting you towards something like some greater purpose? A very spring breakers type spirituality felt in that type of scene. <laughs> really just an amazing like that's when it hammers at home how kind of introspective this film is. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's what you talked about like uh, last week with we are your friends mm-hmm. being kind of like bro deep, you mm-hmm. know, like yeah. deep for those kind of yeah. frat guys. Yeah. This is my version of that. No, that yeah. I love this is like introspective as hell for 
the you know dumb guy who gets like brainwashed by american military propaganda at age five and like does a training montage mm-hmm. to imagine dragons yeah. yeah well these boys are a lot nicer too i mean yeah. at least oh, depic- yeah for sure the depiction in the film is very uh, is very sanitized in that yeah. respect someone i went to film school with told me that uh i think he was from sacramento and he said that they he met them or someone he knew met those guys and they're total assholes hell yeah <laughs> well you know what it they, makes it more real they made they might have got cocky after the movie got yeah released, you know what i mean it's Big money. True. they got that eastwood co-sign yeah o- honestly also like we are your friends definitely romanticizes a lot of that stuff where it's this yeah. it's laid out plainly and so, occasionally criticized yeah of course i yeah. mean they he gets made fun of twice for asking if life is catapulting him towards yeah. some greater purpose i was on some european high yeah right there. <laughs> also there's like a scene where they're i think they're in germany right and the tour guide says like oh this is where hitler killed himself and then oh Spencer yeah and it's like no didn't he kill himself over there because of like american troops coming in and then the tour guide's like no 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 stupid american like <laughs> it's because the russians were coming in and he killed himself over here you know check your american history books and they're just kind of like give it a, a, a they smile it off they're just like eh, okay yeah exactly clint uh, giving his little tanky moment you know <laughs> just letting you know that it yeah. was the red army that actually won world war ii so yeah. dang you know people shit on stalin but he really did stop hitler <laughs> pick your poison am Extended, I right? the number one stalinist film <laughs> podcast. the final chapter of the film begins as they're waiting to get onto the train uh, in their game day uniforms, you know, <laughs> uh, Alec is wearing his uh, Thomas Muller uh, Bayern jersey, which uh, you can go on Letterboxd and read Nate Fisher's entry on this film where he talks about Thomas Muller being a right place in the right time type player. Well represented his jersey in this movie. Anthony in his Lakers shirt, uh, you know, the clutch of the Mamba. Rest in peace, Kobe Bryant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Spencer Stone in his normal green and yellow shirt or whatever. Me and Spencer Stone kind of dress alike. Very monochromatic outfits. <laughs> he has, like, the real normcore drip in this yeah. movie. Like, uh, his very normal clothes are so precisely uh, picked out. This should have worn Best Wardrobe at yeah. the Oscars. <laughs> Oscars aren't thinking ahead. That's, I mean, really, though, in terms of costuming, it's little details like that that really fill in Mm -hmm. uh, stuff like this for me. You know, I I really love the the selection of the outfits there. (laughs) But they board the train, and uh, you already know what's going to go down because they showed the beginning of that in flashbacks. But then you get a little treat. You get a little Wi-Fi action. (laughs) You get a little snack (laughs) action. (laughs) It's so funny. Because thinking, all right, because, all right, Thinking of how this movie was advertised, people definitely, the skeptics were thinking, where's all the action happening? And they're like, okay, they're finally on the train. It's about to go down. Then, you know, you get a scene of Spencer finding out. It's like, hey, there's some seats in first class. Let's go up there. Yeah, they and have Wi-Fi. They have Wi-Fi. That's the class commentary of this <laughs> film. <laughs> <laughs> then, you know, they get the you get the baby Coke. You get the mini, mini wine. Oh, it's so card. good. Yeah, and that's that line is, that makes me hoot and holler, jump up in my seat <laughs> when he says... God, look at the baby soda, Spencer. Alex, shut the heck up. So cute. (laughs) Trust me, I already clipped the line of that. (laughs) I've been thinking about that line for it's now like two years since this movie came out, and I've not stopped thinking about look at the baby soda, Spencer. And the crowd goes wild. (laughs) And the crowd goes wild. Look at the baby soda Spencer, honestly. Like, as a line of dialogue, is just like the Mamba pulling up from mid court. Yeah. You know, just draining it. Nothing mm-hmm. but net. Just absolute money. Uh, and you get these cuts to the outside of the train, you know, zooming along these big, like, drone or crane shots. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, like, kind of break from the tension. And it's so brutally displayed, you know? Like, once they tackle him, uh, and they're just beating the shit out of him. Yeah. Clint really does not shy away from how gruesome this action scene mm-hmm. is. Yeah, I, from what I remember, the train shots are just pretty, like, you just get the train just sharply zooming across the scene. And they kind of, like, add, like, as, like, a not a breaking of the tension but like just a brief cutaway yeah it's just like a weird thing to catch your breath real quick and then it goes back to the pov of the terrorist and alec fucking bashing his face in with the butt of the gun yeah also the most iconic moment of all of course spencer you know getting out from behind 
taking off the cans uh, and like <laughs> getting out from behind his seat and rushing the guy with the mm-hmm. gun pointing at him. Uh, and I guess he misfires the first bullet, which is how mm. Spencer's able to take him down in truly the most weird heroic moment that Clint has shown yeah. in this series of films. True. And Spencer, Spencer's kind of like, it's shown throughout his life. He's kind of a fuck up, doesn't do well in school, doesn't get the military position he wants. And uh, there's even a scene while he's in military school where they have an active shooter situation and he's the bozo that gets up and like is, waits by the door with a pocket knife. And everyone, even the teacher makes a point of calling him, you know, asshole and everyone yeah. laughs. It was with a pen. Oh, yeah. He's it's a, a pen. pen. It's not even a, a knife. Oh, His yeah. Had the knife. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and so it's like it's kind of like he's so prepared for this moment because it's it, like it's a time where he could finally you know show he's not a fuck up even though you know there's many scenes throughout his life that show this just because because like it does kind of flirt with like it's all been leading up to this but i feel like that the tone at the end is like this is all just kind of random like just a, yeah. a random act of her- hero- heroism oh yeah i mean he fucking cuts the music and just like lets the sounds of uh you know the knife going across the back of spencer's neck mm-hmm. and like the terrorists struggling and they're like guttural yelling at him to stop resisting <laughs> and, like uh oh my god that scene where uh fucking anthony runs to the next train car down and he's not even holding a gun and everyone's just like oh no no no, no. <laughs> that is fucked up that is like uh yeah. also like in the mule when the guy gets pulled over yeah uh it's like you know clint is a little bit woke in terms yeah. of how people react to these kind of situations yeah well clint knows the french the french are racist i mean remember that whole uh cartoonist situation or whatever oh uh, uh, yeah i guess that yeah. was happening yeah, yeah, around yeah, that yeah. time we don't need to talk about yeah. that <laughs> i was i was i was trying to oh hebdo yeah there we go yeah yep <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just we not- spencer <laughs> yeah just we spencer stone he didn't do anything wrong he's a hero oh of course and after his heroic moment you know and that's when it gets to that kind of like distant weird ending where mm-hmm. you know you get the music fading up and spencer all wrapped up he's bloodied all over his fucking mm-hmm. face and uh the guy who got shot by the terrorist one time uh getting you know pulled away in the stretcher and then you get the tv footage of them getting medals uh and like the other guys there too <laughs> yeah and like it's cutting back to you know judy greer and uh I almost called her Pam Fisher, Jenna Fisher. (laughs) (laughs) It's really weird. You know, that is like the most uncanny thing in the film. Yeah. Let alone all the recreations is like the intercutting of the actual footage that was televised with like, then they get a guy to reenact putting the medals on them again. And it's like, he's two shades darker, his skin than the guy that was on the screen. And it's really weird and dissonant and like very obvious that it's not the real thing. And I think that's when like it all kind of comes together that this movie is, you know, it is kind of a fun hangout movie and Mm -hmm. it also is a weird uh, like experiment. And it's also an amazing, you know, 20 minute action set piece. And it's all these things clashing together that uh, don't really work out the way a uh, Jamba Juice smoothie might. Uh, it's a little more clunky. Uh, 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 but for me, it goes down smooth. <laughs> oh, yeah. Damn, that's good. That's That was that was money, man. <laughs> I Also, I want to pay uh, pay attention, kind of a weird way to say that, to the scene right pay before tribute. that. <laughs> yeah, pay tribute. I want to do a come tribute to the scene right before that where Spencer Stone, it just shows Spencer Stone in a wheelchair after he's injured and it lets him say a prayer after yeah know, which bookends it from the first part of the movie mm-hmm. where he says a prayer uh before like after he gets yelled at for yeah. fucking pranking a neighbor lady or whatever yeah and it's it's kind of funny like these inclusions of the prayers because it's it's again kind of realistic to these type of people where it's like he doesn't seem religious whatsoever but whenever something you know traumatic happens you just hits that prayer it's like thank god god was on my side right there got <laughs> big ups to god um Anything you want to say before we assign ratings to this one, JT? Um, I'm just going to go fucking for it and say uh, four bullets um, with this. I initially had it at three and a half, um, but like this time around, like all the pieces sort of clicked and fit together uh, a lot more for me. It's like what you were saying, Eddie, it's like weird that it's like such a comforting and like relaxed like it's a nice like chill movie but it's about a terrorist attack (laughs) as well so it's just like it's such an interesting experiment that i don't think 
anyone else other than Clint could really pull off in the way that like it ultimately works out. It's like not his best work, but just one of the most interesting movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I'm going to get, yeah, I'm going to give it four bolts, but again, you know, in 2018, the most experimental mainstream movie ignored by critics, 2019 Gemini man lambasted by critics, legitimately experimental, you know, don't listen to the critics folks. Just, you know, Make your make up your own opinions, you know. Watch fifteen seventeen to Paris. Watch Gemini Man. You, know, you got to support movies like these while they're they're still around. <laughs> support the movies. Support the movies. Support the Warner Brothers. Got to give it up to the Warner Brothers. <laughs> anyway, stream Warner Brothers. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, this is like an incredibly strange movie and mm-hmm. it's a, it's a kind of important one for me, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, I, I was already on board with Eastwood through like Sully, but this one kind of cemented how much there is under the surface in these weird late period movies that people write off as him being, you know, like just some weird old man who yeah. doesn't know what he's doing. You know, obviously the chair is a big incident <laughs> that points toward that. But that's all they got. There's a lot floating around in that weird head of his. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he's been around. He's seen things. Yeah, but I'm I'm gonna join the I'm gonna jump on this train and give it four out of five bullets, uh, which is not just the six cents, but I believe the twelve cents for this episode. Damn, train movies, automatic four bullets. Yeah, we all, we all synchronized. Our our minds are on the same track, so to speak. I don't even really find wordplay like that. Funny. I don't even know why I do it. <laughs> Keep uh, doing wordplay like that. You'll be on the uh, track to success. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't have a medal for that. Let's run a train. 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 Let